Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode 31 with your host, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And joining us today is... Patrick Mahoney at Boston Zoning Strategies. Hey, Patrick. Hey, guys. What's going on? Thanks for having me today. No, oh, thanks for coming on. Sorry it took us so long to get you here. I, I figured if I guilted you enough, you'd have me on. <laughs> <laughs> 31. No, we're psyched that you're joining us. And uh, I think what's cool, Pat, you do obviously zoning law and you're also a building official amongst and a developer. Yeah. I and do you used to work for the city. I did. I worked for inspectional services. A lot, so of, a lot hats. of Yeah. Unique perspectives. Yeah. It's a good one. I like it. Cool. So do you feel like the knowledge of the building code helps you as a zoning attorney as well when you're working with a client early on? Definitely. I mean, I, I wouldn't say I'm the strongest. I have a loose and working knowledge of the building code. I'm not by any means like an extreme authority. Like, for example, um, some of the other plans examiners, like Jim Kennedy right now, is, is on a bunch of boards and extremely knowledgeable in building code. Zoning was kind of always my stronger suit, but my time at IST has definitely helped me become better at that. And, and also, as a zoning attorney with a bit of a building background or some construction background, if a client comes in and they want to do, let's say, an 85-foot building, and maybe the zoning would allow it because it's a PDA, I would say, well, maybe we rethink that, right? Because the economics don't really make sense. Mm-hmm. So, so being a developer helps me in a lot of ways think about things differently. Like you guys have gone through it. I've represented some of you, and, and, and we've worked together and collaborated. And, you know, so I think it, it can it try to add value where possible. I don't want to just get something approved or help someone get something approved that doesn't make sense or can't be built. So in today's crazy world where uh, nothing is really guaranteed, and, and we heard that with uh, Mark Lacasse in our mm-hmm. earlier episode where even knowing the code is about half the battle, what are your thoughts on buying a piece of unentitled land and not having a contingency in place on that purchase? I mean, I personally think it's it's crazy. And, and it's, it's a huge risk, more so than ever before. Uh, I've personally done it. There was a, a property in East Boston where I did have to buy something. It was a deal that was under agreement. It was coming, I knew it was coming up and I bought it without any contingencies. So it is, it is a big risk, but it depends on what you're paying. If there is something that you can do that's totally zoning compliant, then it does make sense. So in, in that scenario, it was a 12,000 square foot lot with um, 110 feet of frontage about. So I knew that um, with within the, the code at the time, you could get four, three families that zoning compliant without any relief, BPDA triggers or anything like that. So it made sense. And the way that I underwrote the deal before making the offer was in a worst case scenario, if everything went sideways, we can still do these four, three families, build them, rent them out, and it like kind of cash flows. So, so then that's what I advise people because people ask me that a lot. Like, I'm making this offer. Can you help me with the offer? And, and the answer is yes, we can do that. But if in any case, if you don't have a permanent contingency, make sure that it underwrites just fine with what's there. So if someone's buying maybe a three-family and they want to try and change occupancy to four units or five units, it's like, okay, well, that may not happen despite the fact that all the buildings on that street are already five units. Or in the case of maybe all two families going to a three-family there's no precedent with zoning, so you have to make sure that underwrites the way it is. You guys want to talk about some common zoning terms and maybe ones that have some confusion around them. So like the first one to me is height. There may be a 70-foot height limit in a certain neighborhood, but how is that height measured? What if you're on a hill? Is it to the roof deck? Is it to the parapet? 
What if you have a basement? Is yeah. a basement counted in height? Mm-hmm. Pat, you want to opine? A little bit. So it, it's kind of interesting. It's it's not um, not to be too loyally here, guys, but it's, it's not it's not a clear cut. It's neighborhood to neighborhood. So in the underlying code, so before, like for example, before Article sixty eight took effect here in Southie, because that's where we are, height would be to the top of the roof rafters. Now, because there's a restricted roof structure in Article sixty eight, it could be in portions to the top of the occupiable area, which specifically in, in this case, I don't agree with this definition, but the way it's applied, it could be the roof deck. Because it's not occupiable space because there's no roof, it's not habitable, it's not heated conditioned space. But that's the way it's interpreted in a restricted roof structure. So that's here, North End, Dorchester, and a couple other areas, but not Back Bay, Beacon Hill, for example. And what about basements? So there's two t- types of height in different sections of the code. One is a vertical distance above grade to the top of the roof, the roof rafters. The other one's stories. A story is anything that's 65% above grade. So for example, if a basement's six, 70% above grade, it's a story. If it's 62% above grade, it's not. South End's a great example of that. Hmm, that's a good one. And if you're built into a hill, where is grade taken from? This is a, a sort of a problematic definition. It could be the median if, if it, the house directly abuts the street. So not to further complicate <laughs> the issue, but if your house abuts the street, meaning the sidewalk, then the grade is right where the street is, which is also the sidewalk. The public way is the street. If not, if, the, if, it's, if a house is set back a bit and on a hill, then you're allowed five feet of a differential. And after that, if it's like a 10-foot hill, for example, you still only get five-foot discount from the point of the sidewalk. And then sort of a median grade. Now, if it's on a hill like we're on Dorchester Street here, not to tell all your listeners where you're... <laughs> where we hang out. Where you hang out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the one interpretation is to do a, a median of that hill as it, as it meets the house. That's what I've always understood. And yeah. as far as stories, how about a mezzanine? How does a mezzanine space count as in, in that way? For zoning and, or building height, um, I think mezzanine is a great tool to, to get a little bit extra living space. It's really designed for mechanical, to came from a building code, a, a building code term, and it's 50% of a floor area. So like, for example, if, if it's a three-story building and you have a mezzanine it, and it's a thousand square foot floor plate, it would be up to 500 square feet of that. It wouldn't count towards your building height from building code, but it also has to be open to the floor below. So if you had a stairway with a door and then and then a bedroom, that could never be a mezzanine. But if you had um, like a living space or think of like a ski loft type of thing, yeah. then you could do a mezzanine. Really, they're, I think, intended to be mechanical rooms and, and things like that. You mentioned that was for building code purposes. Are there times where building code and zoning code conflict? There are, like, so in a restricted roof structure area. What is a restricted roof structure? It's a citation that comes up all the time. Can you elaborate? In South Boston, it's Article 6829, and it's anything that changes the profile of the roof, and it also sets minimum dimensions, or rather maximum dimensions, for the roof deck. So you don't exceed that, it would be trigger uh, trigger conditional use. It's actually an important change today with Article 68, which now mirrors the North End Code. So any, the... Both the North End and, and much of South Boston, Article 68. If you alter the height of the buildings at the time the code took effect, both the North End and Article 68, South Boston, 
it's conditional use. So if like this building we're in today is three stories, the height here is 40 feet. This isn't a 40 foot building. If you change the the roof line, the profile of the roof, that would be a conditional use under the restricted roof structure, Article 6829. And so getting back to where zoning and, and building code conflict, I mean, I'm sure there's many instances where are like maybe the top three most common situations where that could be an issue? Existing buildings are the toughest, right? So if you have an existing building, then you have to think about what is conforming to the current code and what's a pre-existing condition. So with that, then comes that, that's where that intersects, right? The building, the building height. Well, if we go back to the roof structure, right? right? So wouldn't access to the roof be required through building code through a headhouse, but then you would conflict with the zoning code? In this particular exactly. scenario. Exactly, that's kind of what I was sort of trying to lead into. In a little. Oh, sorry. No, 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 no. You, you were great. <laughs> I I, the gun. I, I, no, 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 I was having I'm a, hired. <laughs> I was having a hard time trying to segue into something like an application that made sense, but that's a great example, right? The, so if it's four stories, you add a story, you have, to have, you have to have walk-up access to the roof. You have to have, you know, six foot eight clearance, but that would also trigger a zoning violation. But under the building code, that's, that's a great example of a clear conflict. So, so just to sort of digress back, Ray's talking about if you, if you want to do something simple, like put a roof deck on your home, but it's a four-story building, it's less than, let's say, 230 square feet. It doesn't change the existing profile of the roof. No zoning maybe in that scenario would be required, but building code requires walk-up headhouse access, so six-foot-eight clearance, not a hatch, said differently. By putting up a headhouse, that conflicts with the zoning code. Now, here's another question. If you have an existing building that already has a hatch and you want to go put a roof deck on it and it's four stories, 40 feet, can you do that by right? No, no, not, not without, maybe with zoning, but not with building code. So we've talked number, we've talked what a story is, how height is measured. How about floor area ratio, FAR? That's a very common term. Yeah, so Mark, floor area ratio is, is measured from the exterior of the building on each floor, uh, measured from the exterior in, in siding, and then you deduct certain elements from the building. You deduct the mechanical rooms, storage areas, laundry facilities, and rooms normally found in the basement. And that's pretty straightforward, except when you get to areas um, in the underlying code, which are in Back Bay and Beacon Hill. And then, and then what you can't do is you can't shift FAR. So in those areas, people were creating a, maybe their living finished basement into a storage room so they could add on another story. And that's not allowed hmm. in, in those areas. And FAR could change from, is from town to town, the definition of FAR. Because I know, you know, we've done some projects in Somerville and in Somerville, you know, they don't count closets or common staircases towards FAR. It's actually a really sensible approach in Somerville. They don't count stairways in your building, which which makes sense. Because here, we talk about FAR in neighborhood meetings a lot and before the zoning board. But in reality, when you go by a, a building on the street, I personally don't say, geez, I wonder what the living area as opposed to storage area is in that building. I think, wow, that's too big of a building. Mm-hmm. Or that's a missed opportunity. It should be a bigger building. Well, that living area, FAR is a ratio of the size of the building to the size of the lot it sits on. Right. And so I also agree oh, yeah. by that measure. It's, it's, it's I, I personally think FAR should just go away altogether and, yeah. just, and just have more of a function of height, side yard, rear yard. When you walk by a building, you don't say, I wonder how big the laundry facility is. Like storage is excluded from FAR. I think closets are storage. 
that's a little bit of a gray area or an elevator yeah. shaft. Weren't we looking at a building in uh, Cambridge, Dan, and um, we were considering a build out of the basement, the existing basement with existing height. If you didn't have to dig down, that did not add to FAR, I believe, right? Yeah, Cambridge has mm-hmm. has another set of rules for FAR. So, you know, when you're doing projects, you just got to be careful. It's It's tough because... You know, there's just not, there's no consistency. <laughs> no. And, and the South End has a an actual exclusion for that. So in the South End, there's a section in the application of dimensional requirements that basically says, not to be too geeky about it, but if the building's existing in the time of the code, then you can exceed the FAR by going into areas that weren't normally living space, as long as you don't change the envelope of the building. And I'm paraphrasing greatly, but in essence, so when you walk by, it doesn't matter if it's three floors or four floors or six floors. As long as you don't bump out the rear of the roof, it's fine to add living space. And it's, I think it's, it should exist everywhere in the code, and it's just unique to the South End. Yeah, because it's so victimless. If you're not going to change anyone's impression of the building as they walk by, why not, you know, claim whatever space may be within those walls as living yeah. space, you know? For right. The- you shouldn't have to ask permission if you want to put like an in-law suite in your basement or something like that. Right, or make a two-family 10 units. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> Min- minimum uh, minimum impact. size. Yeah, yeah. Impact. micro units. <laughs> so, Pat, some good advice that you gave me early in my career was always put a realistic value on your building permit. Can you expound on that and why that's important? I can. And I don't know of any times that this has blown up or had a negative impact, but I try to put a realistic value on the building permit in cases an accident or insurance claim, particularly when you're self-performing some of your construction and you have to recreate some of the value that you've added. Obviously, we all have our banks require construction risk insurance in cases an accident before it's complete, right? while the building's under construction. If you have a value, let's say it's a three-family building and you have a value of $350,000, but it's really costing you 6000 although the permit fee is a little bit less because it's 1% of the value. If there's, if there's a fire halfway through and you've already spent two fifty, the bank will, could look at that and make a case and say, look, you declared this value, you're in the business, you know what things cost, and you declared it as three fifty. We're only paying you this. Yeah, or the insurance company. Right, the insurance company is what I meant. Yeah, interesting. And, and I don't know that that's that's happened, but it's it's one thing that concerns me. The other side is, it just is it when I was a plans examiner looking at projects, and when I saw that, I looked further to see like, okay, mm-hmm. well, if it's only a few hundred thousand dollars for what appears to be a large amount of scope, what what am I missing? And then, not that I was looking for a problem, but I'd typically find one. Maybe there's you know, a, a window too close to a bathtub without being tamper-proof glass. And, and so ultimately, it, it creates a better review, but it could it takes longer. Let's talk about the current market and just the overall feel in in Boston on approvals and the board. And, you know, we all know, you know, a lot has gone on in the last couple months. So since you're kind of in it day to day, you know, can you just talk a little bit about, you know, where things are at, how the city is kind of handling things going forward? Is it business as usual? Are things still mm-hmm. getting approved? Is it getting harder for things to get approved? What's just the, the general feel out there? I think over the last few years, our business is getting harder. Be, just because there is a lot of development, there's a lot of construction on in every in every area. And, um, you know, neighborhood meetings, you have people that frequently attend neighborhood meetings 
that are very well educated in zoning. So in some cases, but then not in others. So, so people maybe are unhappy with development, but they like some of the changes that development brings, maybe restaurants in their area, but they're still upset about other things, maybe parking or other areas. So you could often present one project that makes complete sense to a neighborhood that would be you know, concerned about maybe another developer's project that has nothing to do with your client or yourself. And then people are really concerned about that. I think that a couple of different things are going on in the market as well that make it harder. I think people, brokers are, are excellent. They're a great, important part of this industry on all sides of it. But it seems like there's a trend to try and capture tomorrow's value in today's price. So like when we began the podcast, we were talking about buying something totally at risk without any um, contingencies and, and, and taking the chance with it, so to speak. I think this is this is more the broker community, commercial broker community is more ex- expecting that people to do that and it's happening less and less. And now we're in a climate that's even harder just because of the frequency of development that's happening. So you're looking at maybe a 5,000 square foot lot, which is in a 2F 5,000 zone. So probably couldn't even do a two family buy right. And people are trying to get pricing as though it's a already permitted and approved nine unit building. <laughs> and I think that's happening. At least to me, I get pitch deals like yeah. that four or five times oh, all the time a week. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think the lack of building is affecting, clearly is affecting pricing and the lack of obviously inventory is, is pushing pricing? I think a little bit, or it was for a while, but I think we're starting to see a little bit of that demand being met. Now, it, it, interesting thing, um, I noticed a big price reduction in New York or the real estate market in New York changing drastically about 10 or 11 months ago. Yeah, they're down like 10 or 15%. At least, yeah. it seems like it. So I um, I actually went to New York a, f- a few weeks ago with with my daughter and my wife, and, and it was kind of made a fun trip out of it, but I wanted to see like what's really going on. So I met some friends there and in the in de- Man- in development yeah. industry. Yeah. And so it was developers just, or brokers or both? Developers and uh, landlords. Yeah. They said they're, they're two sort of different roles in, a, in one contractor, just casually. It kind of made like a fun weekend type thing out of it. But I was just like, hey, what's going on? There's loads of construction happening. But what really, what I saw was the demand was being met and it was the demand for higher end units. I see that here. I see like every, for every neighborhood we're in, the top of the price tag units, the demand is, I think is being met. And it isn't really that much different to build a higher end unit than it is a middle market unit from a construction standpoint. So there's no there's no economic driver for us to build a whole bunch of, you know, affordable housing. Right. Or even, or lower, or even workforce housing. Right. To yeah. use the term. And First not, time home buyer housing. Right. So exactly. So I think that's that's part of the problem. But I, I see that demand slowly being met in Boston. And I think that was, you know, really it's a good thing. That was the intent. That's the reason that there's been um, you know, with this with this mayor, that was part of his platform with 2030 is to create more housing to bring down the the housing prices. I think that's happened. In your opinion, how do we solve that problem? Where, because I feel that, you know, you go to a neighborhood or you just, if you build, you know, a middle market, you know, first time home buyer unit, I feel that the demand there is so great compared to the higher end market. How do we, how do how do you think the city should handle that? Because, you know, you have people all over the place, politicians, et cetera, demanding affordable housing, affordable housing, affordable housing. But 
you know, from a developer's perspective, just as you stated, it's this almost the same price to build, you know, a $1.5 million unit versus a $750,000 unit. So, you know, how do we, how do we solve that problem? I think the only way that, well, one way we could rectify it, it might be to, um, on us to build smaller units, not micro units. I don't think micro units are a one size fits all solution to this because then you just have small units that sell for a, just a slightly reduction off of whatever the top is. But I think like a two bedroom, one bath, you know, like for example, in this market that we're in South Boston, because we're happen to be here right now, a two, maybe a two bedroom, one bath, two bedroom, one and a half bath, 850 to 950 square feet might be a good option at $750,000 instead of with one parking space, instead of 1,200 square foot unit with the same. But now you're talking increased density, right? which people don't like. Well, I think that goes back to sort of what I was saying before <laughs> about FAR. I think it, it doesn't matter. I mean, I mean yeah. from an urban planning standpoint, it makes sense as long as there's enough. I think density is really the solution. One non-obvious uh, contributor to the housing shortage that I read recently is in Boston where housing is so expensive, there's actually a lot of homes which are just passed down from generation to generation and never see the market for three generations of family. Oh, it's an interesting point, Mark. Yeah. Um, I know there's, there's, and there's also houses out there, like there's triple deckers and only one of the units is being occupied. Right. That, that because there's, I mean, we've, we've talked to a, a, a good amount of sellers and they don't want to, like they've inherited the house and they don't want to deal with tenants. So they just live in one of the units and just leave the rest of the building vacant. We have a house next to one of our rentals that's just like that. <laughs> Pat, from your perspective as a former building official, I think um, as developers, we've been frustrated. We've been in situations where a building inspector might come out and we might think he's busting our chops about something. And that building inspector may have just been dragged into court for a similar issue or something uh, of that nature. Can, can you go into that a little bit and tell us just what the other side, uh, what, what that experience might be like? There's a million circumstances like that where you're thinking. I remember one time I got a building um, violation on a rental property for not having screens. And I didn't even know that was, that was a violation, <laughs> but it was a similar type of circumstance where that particular official was was in or code enforcement agent was in court earlier that day for, for a problem landlord with and potentially a problem tenant. I don't know the exact facts, but there was no screens or the screens were damaged. And then and, and there was a, a dumpster and debris was going into the apartment. So in my case, they, they saw my building 10 years ago with, without screens and I got cited for that. So from my point, I was like, I didn't even know that was a requirement. Mm -hmm. uh, for construction and daily construction, even still, I'm learning new things that come up during rough inspections. For example, like fireproofing, not just the vertical holes in the stud where your, where your wires or your pipes go through, but the horizontal. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I had an inspection recently or a few months ago where that happened. Some said the, the, the building official said, I'd like you to fireproof this area. So, you know, and my partner was with me and he, he's, he's, um, he's, he's in the field and, and his almost first response was like, I didn't think that was required. And I said, I didn't either. But the, the building inspector took him in and explained it and explained why, specifically to stop a fire within a bay. And it made sense and we did. And I've, now I mm. do it every time. So what about putty packing? Another one, new one is like putty packing behind common electrical boxes. You know, that's, mm. we've been cited on that recently. As right, well. you're not allowed more than an eighth inch gap <clears throat> between yeah. that. 
Another common uh, source of confusion to me is people talk about existing non-conforming conditions. They say, oh, this is grandfather status. Mm -hmm. And other times I hear of a neighbor who got a letter from the building department that says, remove your roof deck or apply for building permits post haste because said roof deck was never permitted properly. When does something become grandfather status or when does the enforcement provision expire? It's a, it's a good question that doesn't have a super clear answer, but I'll do my best with it. In outside of Boston, it's very clear. Outside of Boston, if um, if the building, if the municipality or authority having jurisdiction issues a building permit in error, there's a statute of limitations for six years. Meaning, let's say they issue a building permit without any zoning process, and uh, the height there is 35 feet, and the the building is for 45 feet, it gets built. Within five years, they can revoke the permit and require you to remedy the, the violation. After that... That seems so crazy. It, it doesn't happen super often. To but me, it should be like in college, if the teacher grades your paper wrong and you got the benefit of it, <laughs> yeah. that's your grade. That's your grade. Yeah, you handed the test back. Well, it is your grade as long as they, yeah. you know, it, it's six years later, right? So, so it's, and it's after the permit issues, not after the building is completed. So after the permit issues, then you can... Um, you know, you're sort of at risk up to six years in that in that way. So, it, which is another point where if you get a permit that's issued incorrectly, either you someone gives them false information or they make a mistake, it's not it's to no one's benefit. That's why with zoning reviews, I'm the first one to try to point out additional citations which may be needed because if you don't get cited for it and it comes up three years later, you're no better. It, it, that's exactly right, and and. and in the other part outside of Boston, if you just build something with no permit, let's say you're in Cohasset on Main Street, you have an empty lot and you just build a building, 10 years later, that's okay. There's nothing that can be done about it. Now, it doesn't become grandfathered. It just means that no action can be brought against you. So it doesn't, if you build, let's say, a 10-unit building with no permits and it's not allowed in that area, it doesn't then become a legal 10-unit building. You won't then mm. have a CO for 10 units, but they can't then take an action and uh, make you correct it. So grandfather status is erroneous. It's really just the statute of limitations on enforcement has since expired. Right. What about like in the city? So let's let's kind of move back into the city now. Like if you if someone builds a roof deck on their building and they hadn't pulled a permit for it, mm -hmm. and ten years later, we're not talking about me in this situation, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> Have you been? been? <laughs> <laughs> Should we be? <laughs> And 10 years later, you know, no one's called you out on it. You know, you never pulled a permit. Can can someone come back and say, you never pulled a permit on that? You have to remove it. I would say no, because, and the reason I said outside of Boston is because that, that area of the code is very clear in chapter 40A, which is the part of the building code or zoning that affects all of Massachusetts except for Boston and the zoning enabling statutes take Boston out of 40A. And that, that's what gives us the you know, the Zoning Board of Appeal and the ability, because Boston is a unique city that's growing faster than, let's say, the legislators could write zoning. And, and I think we see that all the time. Courts have interpreted through litigation most of 40A as like a gap filler for this purpose, right? So 40A is a very thought out section of um, mass general laws that have been drafted and, and, and proposed and amended over over several decades. Boston zoning has only existed since 1962. So there, there isn't, it isn't the same amount of thought that goes in, goes into that section of the code. So they, the courts do use that as a gap filler. And many judges would say that that would apply still, but there isn't, 
that I know of explicit case law around that that drags that section over. Gotcha. So what what happens if going back to the roof deck scenario? What happens if a developer builds a roof deck and they're not allowed? They haven't pulled a permit on it. They sell the the condos, and then five years later, the building turns over or they sell the unit. How how what could happen there? So let's say it's ten years, just so we keep yeah, the statute limitations yep. the same. So, so there's a there's no permit on the roof deck in this hypothetical. The condo is sold. Ten years later, um, a code enforcement agency from ISD comes out and they write a building code violation that's saying you have to remove the roof deck or remedy it by filing a building permit, which ultimately would trigger zoning. At that point, I think the homeowner could say because it, they've it, they've owned it for eleven years, it, they've always had the roof deck there. They would file a claim in Superior Court and say, "I, you know, I was cited inappropriately. This is outside the ten-year statute of limitations." And they'd cite Chapter um, Master Under Law Chapter Forty A in the ten-year statute of limitations because it would be a roof deck that was open and notorious. People knew about it. There was ten years that they could have brought a violation, and at that point, the, the courts would have to decide whether or not Boston is applicable in this situation. What if it was within, what if it was three years later? Yeah. yeah. Is it buyer beware or does buyer have remedies against the developer who sold them the unit? So six years later, and this is something that we should all know, there's a statute of repose in Massachusetts. So if you build something, it's an inspected and it's done according to the code, then you, after six years, a statute of repose is like a statute of limitations, but it's, it's much harder. It's a much harder line, meaning there's no recourse. With the statute of limitations, the reason I said open notorious, it's when someone knew or should have known that the condition existed. In a statute of repose, that doesn't apply. It's six years, cut off. Six years in a day, doesn't matter, falls down, you're, there's no recourse. And that's, and that's um, unique to Massachusetts. So in Boston, we have conditional use permits, which is like a special permit instead of a variance. And there's a, although the zoning board, it's the same sort of community process for either one. And, and the zoning board, because Boston is intentionally or unintentionally downzoned to create a community process so developers will work with their neighbors and something that everyone can ideally live with gets, gets approved and everyone can mm. sort of be happy with it. There is a, there is a process. So the zoning board in, in Boston is used to seeing a, a multiple variances and conditional use permits, but there is a lower standard. So with the variance, it's a substantial hardship unique to your property, but not the neighborhood. So for example, there would be no reasonable substantial hardship to grant an FAR variance. There'd be no reasonable hardship to grant a use variance. But this type of information really isn't helpful to educate people that might be opposing development, right? (laughs) (laughs) So can, can we talk about the Boston Zoning Code for a second? Absolutely. Like you said, the Boston Zoning Code was written in the 60s or, in, you know, 50s. Put 50s? 62. Damn, I always say 1956, and I say that with <laughs> utter authority. And a lot of it hasn't changed since then. And you, you brought up the point where, you know, the city has, is growing faster than legislate, legislation can change the code. Mm-hmm. What do you think we can do to solve the zoning problem in the city? Do you think... Or would you like to see, because we know some cities have, you know, it's very straightforward. It's very black and white. Mm -hmm. You can either build it here or you can't build it here. And we're not going to grant any variances if you can't. Do you think we should go 
down that road? Do you think Boston should adopt something like that? Or do you think there should be a hybrid? Or do you think there's something completely different that that should be put in place? Because clearly what's in place now, it's it's very, very ambiguous. And it, there's a lot of uncertainty as we were, as we've talked about. And it's hard to get stuff built. And and if I if Boston wants to continue to grow and and move forward, there's got there's got to be a happy medium somewhere. No, it, it, it's a really good question. I think, although it would hurt my career as a zoning attorney, I think that the real solution is density and upzoning. For example, New York. New York is a fast growing market, really fast, big a big market with a lot of overseas investment, and they've experienced in some cases a twenty percent reduction in their in their real estate prices. And I think that that's happened because the zoning in New York is a lot more aggressive and conducive to the env- to Manhattan. So you have a lot more uh, open shop versus necessarily not everything is is union in New York be- because not every building and most buildings don't need zoning relief. And, and I think that that's important to to look at. Now, some people say, you know, we don't want to be Manhattan and that's okay. No one is asking that, but upzoning has its benefits. And in that case, if you're concerned about affordable housing, if that's a primary concern of yours, then maybe look to some areas that have met their demand, like New York recently, and see what they've done. And I think that answer is zoning that makes sense for the urban metropolis that that we're familiar with. And, and people, there isn't as much of a political process. And when I say political, I don't mean elected officials, but more just dealing with neighborhood associations and the general populace. I love uh, Seattle, Oregon recently outlawed single family homes in their zoning code. Instead of saying, this is the maximum density, they said no more single family. It must be at least two, three, et cetera. But just interesting. It's very interesting, but but it, yeah. it's, it's to the same point. Mm-hmm. If, if Boston's, if something doesn't change and all development or zoning relief stopped, then I think at some stage we'll see single family homes all over the city for two, three, four million dollars, not in Back Bay and Beacon Hill, like they currently exist, but in East Boston and Rosendale and eventually High Park, I think that's, you know, I think that because there's, there's certain people that need to live in Boston no matter what, mm-hmm. and that's not going to change. And single family homes are becoming harder and harder to find. I, I've, the last year I've done five, five separate cases where multiple family buildings were converted to one or two family homes for people in South End and Back Bay. And I think that's, Kind of remarkable to think that like there is basically a lowering the density. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, you're you're always going to have a case where there's a lot of there's a lot of people that want to stay in the city. Now we're not in the generation where you know you go to school in the city, you graduate, you get married, you move to the suburbs, and you start a family. People want to get married, raise their children, and stay in the city because they work in the city, they enjoy the city, they enjoy the, the life that they live. Commute time is so closely correlated to happiness. I think that they, if I had to pick one variable. Yeah. yeah. But look at all of us for an example. I mean, yeah. all of us live in the city. We all have young families. Mark no. doesn't have any children yeah. that, he knows, that he knows about. But, <laughs> the, <laughs> but the, you know, I think that's, that's our attention. Our listens to this podcast. Oh, maybe we edit that up. <laughs> no, keep no. it in. I'm sure she'll love it. <laughs> but the, but it, that's the reality, right? Like I am... Um, my, I have two children. We, we lived in South Boston for 20 years. And, uh, and then we recently moved to Charlestown in the Navy Yard. And, and uh, my wife works downtown. We have one car, two parking spaces, one car. And my kids have a great quality of life. I mean, I grew up in the suburbs. I grew up in, in the South Shore, a nice town. But they see more in a week than I saw in six months. 
between going to the parks, you know, their school, they take a boat to go to their school. They, they have friends and dance and all these activities and they're three and four years old. Like it, it's, it's a, and they have that benefit because we're able to work without sitting in our cars for 15 hours a week. To your point, I mean, we don't, might not necessarily need to outlaw single family homes. Not but, a bad idea. But, <laughs> but there could be sections of the city where, you know, you have a nice little mix of single families and then you have other sections of the cities where density is allowed. And there's got to be, and there's got to be some happy medium where, where that can occur, but who, who the hell knows when that's going to happen. Yeah. And I think they've, they've started to do it a little bit in like the Dorchester Ave planning, planning initiative, which isn't zoning, unfortunately it should be, but the, it, it's a, a very thoughtful plan that, that takes it requires uh, or offers density bonuses to developers. So there's additional community benefits baked into the plan uh, instead of, you know, one-on-one agreements with, with neighbors and, and things like that. It, it's something that benefits everyone, whether it's traffic studies or contributions to parks. And, and that's along the old colony, Dorchester Ave area, that corridor. So, I mean, there are some thoughtful industrial sort of areas that are very underutilized that are becoming more attractive through plans like that. And I think they're doing a plan East Boston, which has a similar type mm-hmm. of approach in, in not so much in the neighborhood, but around the T stations and the sort of the squares in the area, they intend to have some upzoning is at least my impression. And, and I think that will be the start of the path to the solution. Agreed. Yeah. Really, it's a really thoughtful approach. Going back to the idea of a community process and that political process that you explained, some developers go it alone. Mm -hmm. They will stand in front of the crowd, in front of the association, and present their plans. Others hire a zoning attorney like yourself to run point. Tell us why you think that hiring a zoning attorney is the best course. So... As an outsider, like, with working with with you guys outside of here and in different levels, I I know that some people are very capable, depending on the size of the project, doing their own process, and then maybe having a zoning attorney just present them at CBA and write the decision. And in some for some clients, I'll do that. I see the best benefit is not a one or the other, but more of a hybrid. So have your zoning attorney maybe coordinate inspectional services, review your plan, look for opportunities to potentially reduce violations add value, whether it's dollar value by not building in an area that is just over high rise or has additional consequences that maybe the developer hadn't considered at the time. So that's one reason to have a zoning attorney or someone involved in the process. The other part is to just bifurcate bifurcate the tasks associated with with the approvals. And and the political process, what I mean is not not city councilors and, and mayor's office, but more political in the sense of like the general populace. Your na- your butters meeting, your neighborhood groups, door knocking, and the personal approach that I think developers should and it's their responsibility to bring to bring to their own approval. People want to see who's building the building, not just what's being built and what your violations are. So I think the real benefit isn't do I have a zoning attorney and an architect or not. It's more my zoning and architect will help me coordinate the building that can be built on the lot with dealing with the zoning code that's there, the relief that we're seeking, the topical graphical conditions that may the lot may have, as well as building code considerations and cost, and then navigating that process through the community groups. But also, I think the developer, instead of just saying, okay, I've hired Boston Zoning Strategies and Embark to do this, so I'm going to hang back. I think it's 
let let the zoning attorney and your architect do your job. But then after that, go out and go door to door like you guys all do. Mm-hmm. Meet people, hear their concerns. That's important. And that makes for a better project overall. So it isn't just on a tough project, I'll hire a zoning attorney and on a, a, a smaller one, I won't. It's just what level of interaction do I want and, and where can we add value? So it's almost a myth that hiring a zoning attorney, zoning attorney and you know, a power team will guarantee victory at the zoning board of appeal. <laughs> yeah. And well, nothing's think, guaranteed these days. Nothing, no, I know. I know. I just think I, some people think that, oh, you know, you've got, you know, you've got the big guys swinging the guns here and uh, maybe guns isn't the right word. You got the big guys coming in and, you know, here they are. It's not, it's not about, like you said, who you hire and what kind of leverage they may or may not have anywhere in the process or knowledge, special knowledge with the process. Right. It might be, it might be a tolerance for in neighborhoods for what different neighborhoods group deem appropriate. It might be understanding the zoning code. I don't think there's an insider's network anymore so much like there was. I think everything has been, the playing field has been leveled. I know the value that we have is that, you know, sometimes when we're considering before we go to purchase and sale, we're considering, or when we're in our due diligence period, we say, you know, are we crazy? Was this was this a bad decision? Should we back mm. out? That's kind of when we can test the waters initially, yeah. just by saying, "Hey, what do you what do you think?" And sometimes zoning doesn't matter right. as much as we think. If you have just something that's a conditional use, it's you have to make a decision. Like I may get this one approved, but how is that going to affect the next five? Where we do have a bunch of relief that we need, and how is this going to affect our relationships in the community here? If this project is poorly received, and then we want to, and although it's maybe completely zoning compliant, how does that? Are there any negative effects that will carry over to the next project? And that's something to consider as well. What are uh, what are the typical costs that you would charge for a zoning opinion? So if I'm a new developer or just any developer and I'm in my due diligence phase and I just want to run by the feasibility of a potential project by, you know, an expert like yourself, you know, how much would you charge for something like that? I don't necessarily think I'm an expert, but I appreciate the... <laughs> Compliment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, so what I typically do, I used to just do it. Like um, I have a lot of friends, colleagues, partners, et cetera. You know, we, we, we bounce stuff off each other all the time. And I used to just do um, sort of a high level analysis for nothing. And then what the problem is, it took me away from my work because the phone was ringing a lot and not a lot of things were turning to business. So it was recommended to me by a mentor I had that to just charge a nominal fee and then apply that towards the total fee. So I charge $500. And what that is, it's basically, you know, give or take an hour's worth of work, which is some in the range of what I bill an hour if I have to do hourly work. And I'll look at the zoning, I'll look at the lot, and then I'll talk to someone over the phone. It's not something you'd take to a bank, but it's enough to say like, here's what the zoning is. Here's some things that I've worked on in the community. Here's some other things that other developers worked on in the community. That's There's no precedent by someone else's zoning relief, but you know, I think there's some tolerance level that would be appropriate for this type of use. Now, to say, to try and guess or handicap odds is just a great way to commit malpractice. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I do think that because at the end of the day, somebody's coming to you and they're saying, you know, what are my what are my chances of success here? And you're like, right. hey, I hate to put a number on it, but but you can't, right? So, but but you also want to give someone enough information to make an informed business decision, which is what anyone's trying to do. And, and I think that's it's enough money that if someone's serious, like you know, they're not just going to mm-hmm. call you every time that they think about buying something. Sure. But on the other side, it's it, you're adding value without 
you know, prohibitive price tag. I think it's great. I mean, it's worth it. it. For, the, the cost there is worth it, um, in my opinion. If if you know, if you're gonna, if you end up going through the deal with the deal and you get it approved and you make, you can make a lot of money. So, or on the flip side, if you go forward with something and then it can't get approved or doesn't get approved, yeah, you know, if if you're just way off, then yeah, you've saved it, yourself that. That's that's happened. It's, it's short money. A, a lot where someone will call me and say, um, "I bought this lot. What can I do here?" <laughs> yeah, and that's a scary situation. Maybe yeah, they yeah. have. And that was my hard, earlier question. Hard money you know? and. Yeah. <laughs> I got to get to spin class soon. So uh, how about a quick game of uh, spin overrated, class? underrated? Nice. Yeah. Is that what the tights are for, Mark? Yeah, that's that's why I'm wearing this little... Is that why you had your work done yesterday? Uh, <laughs> he was trying to avoid that right at the start of the pod. We got to bring it up. Oh, no. Did he tell you? Just no. Se- self-care. Self-care. No. <laughs> self-care. What type is a cool sculpting? <laughs> no, but apparently... <laughs> We can uh, talk about uh, it another time. <laughs> All right. Mark's getting red in the face. Mark's more in laws listening to this. That's right. <laughs> That's okay. I thought about Botox in my forehead. Yeah. <laughs> you got a great tan. Were you in Bermuda last week? I was over the weekend. Did you yeah. some surfing? Nice. I tried. I, I, I'm actually a lot more out of shape than I thought. But I did do a little bit of surfing. Uh, I paddled out with a buddy of mine and I got knocked around. And then like his girlfriend who doesn't surf apparently came up and just like with as much elegance as someone walking on the sidewalk just strolled by me what took me half an hour to get where I was in like three minutes just like cruised out to the reef. Nice. And, uh, but awesome. it was good. Good exercise. All right. First overrated, underrated is a pump and tank fire suppression system. Oh, they suck. I wouldn't do it. Overrated, ever. really? Yeah. I, here's the thing. It, it, it's, it's a good solution when you're gutting a three-family to get a building permit, but an actual function of what you're using. For an extra $10,000, I think, you could have a 13R system, which is a good quality system, and if something breaks down in the building, it'll still work. Those A 13D system is which the pump and tank that you're talking yeah. about. I think we're designed for like farmhouses or out in the rural areas that don't have any water pressure to prevent a fire. And that's really what the application's for. So the benefit is you don't have to cut open the street and connect to a fire suppression in the street. You can just have a tank, as it sounds, in your basement. And should there be a fire, that's what will... Yeah, except when there's a fire, your electricity may be off and the pump won't work. Right. Right? And and you can't... You can't... And and if there is a fire, it'll it'll short out. And and if you hook your... The the fire department hooks a hose up to it, it might blow apart the PVC lines. (laughs) So... So, it, like, I think you get a building permit, but for an extra short money, yeah. you could just do a real system that makes sense. And also, they take a lot of space up. I That's mean, true. These, yeah. are, these are big tanks. Now, yeah. they, they did, they, I did do one underneath the stairs. It was like sort of a custom made tank. And um, so they do make odd sizes that you can get, but yeah. I, I don't, I don't like okay. them at all. Next one. Hmm. And also, you can't eliminate an egress. So, so if you have a 13R oh. system and it's three-story building, you can eliminate one means of egress with a... So that's huge. Three stories or less with a 13R system, which is a fire suppression system hooked up to the street, you can now do one means of egress instead of two. Yep, but, you've, you've always but, been able to do it. Yeah. But do you still have to abide by that 50-foot... Uh, yeah, it's 125 feet now. It used to be 50 feet from the furthest corner of the building to the fire-protected area, which is basically in your common space. Now it's... 125 feet from the furthest corner of the building, travel distance outside. Mm. So, I mean, there's a, there's a height limitation there. Well, the travel distance, but yeah. Right. But you, so you can't be more than three stories. And, um, but it, I think it's, I think that's a real benefit. 
Absolutely. The second means takes up a lot of space, especially if it has to be inside. And it's a better building. If something happens, I mean, no one's died from fire in a fire-protected building. The rounding rule. Oh, it's garbage. <laughs> so, the, so what Ray's talking about is the rule for rounding numbers, which, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but basically says, if an odd number, um, for example, like parking, if 1.5 parking spaces is required, uh, like in South Boston for a two bedroom, and you have, let's say you're adding one unit, so 1.5 spaces are required, then it would round up to two. Because that leading number is odd. Because the leading number, the one, is odd. Mm. If it's even, for example, if it's 2.5 spaces are required, then it just stays two because the leading number is even. That is the rule for rounding numbers in Boston zoning as defined in Article 2 or 2A, which is horrible and it makes no sense. <laughs> my, my third grade math teacher is rolling over right now. Mm. It, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's not how we round numbers. No, it's not. It, yeah. and it's, it's completely arbitrary that an odd number would go up and an even number would go down. And I can find no understanding or rationale for why that exists. <laughs> I wonder who decided yeah. that. Is flip a coin? I have no idea. But it is <laughs> someone who was having a great time. It's probably just... You know, just writing the code and like, okay, let's just see how we can screw with people today. They were zapped out of their minds. <laughs> how about micro units? I think, I think they, um, I don't think they're underrated. I think, I think that they, or um, I think they're a good thing. So what, how does that answer? Appropriately rated. I think they're probably underrated. Or underrated. Under, over, or appropriate. So underrated would mean that they're better than they really are. You have a legal degree, don't you? Come on. I, I'm fried. I'm too yeah. busy thinking about you and a spin bike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do. I, I, I think that they're I think that they're underrated. I think that I think micro units could be a great solution if you're trying to solve for affordable housing. Okay, how about public service jobs? Like policemen and firemen? Or building officials. Oh, I think they're excellent. Public they're servants. Called, everyone in special services is an excellent person that I've ever met. And the best time of my life was when I worked there. Love it. They're they're working late. We know that. I mean like off hours inspections, for example. Right. I mean there's building inspectors that are at jobs at six in the morning and then six p.m. I mean, you can't downplay the you no, know, work no. that they have going on. So yeah. Well, anyone we call when we we're in any time of crisis is a is a is a public service, right? A first responder or a building official. All right. So I'll further this with uh, off street parking requirements. Oh, overrated. Shouldn't exist at all. They yeah. should be outlawed along with single family homes and FAR. Is exactly okay. Last one: beach houses. Love renting them. I don't want to own one. It's a good answer. I kind of want Mark to get one so we can use it. Like that's it's like a boat. Yeah. Right. The best kind of boat is your friend's boat. Exactly. All right. Well, hey, this has been great. I had a great time. Thanks, guys. Hey, thanks, yeah. Pat. Folks want to find you or you get a hold of you. How should they do that? Email's best, Patrick at bostonzoning.com. I appreciate that. Yeah, cool. Yeah, no problem. Thanks I'm- everybody for listening, for rating, and uh for reviewing and sharing. We really appreciate it. And I'll see you on the next one. Episode 32. Take care. Later. Thanks, guys.